Hi, I'm Priyanka Ganju. I'm the founder and CEO of Kofi Beauty. What I love most about beauty is that it is very emotional and personal. And so often when you ask someone what product they're using, they'll tell you about how they're feeling, how their day went. And I feel like the fact that, you know, putting on lipstick can change your whole mood and your whole vibe is just so powerful. From New York City, you're listening to Beauty is Your Business, covering the intersection of innovation and business in the beauty industry. Thank you for joining us on today's episode of Beauty is Your Business. As you heard from the intro today, I am buzzing with Priyanka from Kofi Beauty. Welcome to the show, Priyanka. Hi, Jessica. Really excited to be here. Thank you for having me. So I want to jump right into this. So you came out and founded your own brand, but you actually have had a legacy in this beauty industry. So I would love to get a little bit of the backstory, the founding of Kofi Beauty. What led you to wanting your own brand and ultimately leaving some really great positions at some amazing beauty companies to go and start this? Interestingly, it's wild to me that I started a beauty brand because I didn't grow up feeling really very much part of beauty, part of like the beauty movement or feeling like I was beautiful. I didn't wear makeup till I was in my late 20s. But somehow I did find myself working in the beauty industry. I came to it from a business background. I worked in management consulting, got an MBA, and then landed at Estee Lauder in a strategy role. And that's really where my love story with beauty began, because Estee Lauder, of course, has a ton of beautiful brands that they manage. And I started like playing around with it on my own time. And very soon after I joined Ipsy, which is a beauty subscription service, it was a startup at that time. And, you know, the role they had was merchandising, being the merchandising director. And I was like, I'll do it, even though I had no experience in it. And that was amazing because I got the touch and feel so many new brands that were coming up and really try product and totally, totally fell in love with the category. And I realized that the reason that I had not engaged with beauty was because I never saw someone who looked like me growing up engaging with it and, you know, just having fun with it and playing with beauty products. Even, you know, in the YouTube era, you didn't see a lot of South Asian creators in the space. And so I had this aha moment of being like, beauty is fun. It doesn't need to feel like come with judgment that I kind of grew up with. It can be really inclusive. And it's just more about like the intention of companies to cater to that audience and kind of center that audience. And it hadn't been done before, but that doesn't mean that it cannot be done now. And so that's what led me to leave my job and decide to start Kofi. Okay. So talk to me about those first early days. You have this idea for Kofi. You know, it's a great one. You believe in it. What really ultimately, what were the steps that led you to say, I'm now ready to leave my full-time paid position, which I'm sure was very stressful. I'm ready to leave and I'm ready to take the jump. What were the things that had to happen for you to do that? I'm actually a very all or nothing kind of person. So once I had the idea, I knew I wanted to work on it. But I actually at that point did not have a proof point, except like I knew that world over, there's more than a billion South Asian people and our culture has so much 
richness and color and that hasn't been told before. And I'd obviously seen in my experience, especially at Ipsy, so this indie beauty revolution with Glossier and Huda, all these brands that we had worked with when they were really small become really big. And so I felt like there was a space that needed to be filled, but it was just an idea, honestly. And I, I felt like if I don't like burn the boats, as they say, like I'm never going to be able to actually, you know, commit myself to it. So I had some savings at that point in time. Of course, it wasn't a decision that I took lightly. I always, you know, wanted to start something of my own. And this was an idea that had been stuck in my mind for a long time. So I left my job and then I went out to actually build those proof points, right? It's important when you have an idea to kind of validate it's Of course, I was feeling this, but are there other people who feel like this as well? So I spent, I would say, about six to nine months actually just doing a lot of customer research. And that was not like a fancy, I hired an agency to do it. It was me in Facebook groups being like, hey, I'm building a beauty brand, come chat with me. So in New York coffee shops, I'd ask people to bring their beauty bag with them ask them about like their beauty routines. And at that point, speaking to a lot of South Asian women. And one of the things that I realized was that many of them were talking about how they used to use kajal, which is South Asian eye pigment, but it was always their mother's kajal and they never felt like it looked good. It was like smudging all the time. And they had one that, you know, they traditionally used and they didn't feel like they felt, all of them had it, but they didn't feel like it was something that they were like finding joy in using. And that was like a aha moment for me to be like, wow, this is such an amazing way to even introduce my brand because it really does connect what we're speaking to the South Asian heritage with the kind of clean ingredient story and high performance makeup products that we want to create. And that's what actually led to the first product being Kajal. So definitely the initial steps were going out and like speaking to people and, you know, just kind of understanding what, what they wanted from a product perspective. The other theme that came out very apparent and, you know, obvious to me was that there's a product gap, but there's an emotional gap. And that was kind of seeing people who look like us being in beauty campaigns, not just sort of in front of the camera, but also behind the scenes. When we shot our first campaign, I still remember the moment because the whole team, like our makeup artist, our creative director, our stylist, the models on set, they were of South Asian heritage. And that team had never come together before to create something so beautiful. And so when we launched that first campaign, it looked so different, so fresh. We got a ton of press. We were in Vogue and Allure and all these beautiful publications because it just was such a fresh and new concept. So I think being able to create that representation, not just in front of the camera, but also behind the scenes in terms of who are the stakeholders involved in creating that product, who are the people we're testing these products on in terms of skin tones and product development. I think all of that made this brand really come to life in a very different way. Absolutely fabulous. There are a ton of brands that launch every year. We know in beauty, it's one of the most innovative spaces in our world. So you come to the market and you start to get placements in Vogue and Allure and so forth, which is really hard to do. What were some of those things that you were able to do in order to get those placements? Did you hire a PR company out of the gate from the beginning? Did you have connections from your previous role? What got you in front of the right people to hit those types of really incredible placements? I feel sometimes I got very, very lucky, but you can say there were some aspects where you're creating your own luck, right? So one of them was that, like I said, we had this very unique team that came together. And if you look at the imagery from our first campaign, it was so fresh. This was still while COVID was ongoing and we had we were in lockdown, right? And so people were seeking joy. People were seeking 
you know, something that would lift them up. And those images really speak to that. It's this beautiful aspirational imagery we created with a campaign called Nazar No More, which was speaking to this idea of Nazar, which is evil eye. And the idea that we are rejecting the male gaze in beauty, we're rejecting those patriarchal Eurocentric ideals that have been thrust upon us as people of color. And I feel like that messaging was so different and new at that time that resonated with the editors of these publications. And, you know, they picked up the story, even though we had no budget behind it. You know, there was no like paid placement that we did. We did hire a PR agency that wasn't important to be able to bring all these people together in a room and actually be able to present to the right people our story. But ultimately, the fact that the story got picked up, I think, is a result of having that differentiated story at the end of the day. So that combined with, of course, having a product that we had tested with the community, built with the community, meant that there was already some buy-in. Like, you know, when we when I came out with the product, it wasn't something that I had never tested on a real person before. I feel like we had some buy-in going in and the community going in that built in that was able to respond and immediately kind of resonated with the product that we were launching. So you start a brand and you obviously have a very limited amount of money, no matter how much you have, right? There's only so much that will go around. How did you prioritize? Because you were able to do photo shoots and PR and obviously get samples out in front of people to get their excitement around it. So talk to me a little bit about how you prioritized your resources in the beginning and what were the things that you feel like were absolutely the most paramount? So I had set aside, and these were all my savings, about $150,000 that got us to the launch day, which is, of course, brands can spend less, they can spend more, like you said, you know, you can always spend more, but that was what I had. And at that point in time, to be completely honest, despite my like, business background, it was much more a passion project than it was a business plan. And the passion project was that I wanted to see beautiful South Asian imagery. I wanted to see this product and this brand story out there in a way that had never been done before. It was truly like something that I I personally like was like, I want to see this because I've never seen this happen before. And so in a way, I disproportionately spent on that photo shoot. But the good thing was, again, because we had this community that kind of came in together, we were able to like, they were very willing to give me a discount because they understood that we were just starting out and we had this vision and they were bought into the vision. So we were able to do much more in a limited way, but we definitely, I prioritize the photo shoot. I prioritize the product quality. And interestingly, for that first run, I had to pay 100% upfront because, you know, again, this is the first time we're placing an order. So the vendor, even though, again, I had that Estee Lauder Ipsy background, the moment you leave those companies, you no longer can leverage that. You're just a person, random person. So they're like, we need you to pay upfront before we can make any product for you, which was, we found a great partner and, you know, they're still our partner. And I am really grateful that they worked with us at that point in time because we were able to create a best in class formula. But I would say it ended up being about 30% photo shoot and assets. 30% was obviously paying for the product and packaging. I worked with a creative director who created our logo, our whole uh, look and feel packaging. We still work with her to this day. Again, an amazing partner. That was about 30%. And then the rest of the 30% was website, PR agency. We also did some seeding of product to influencers and building a community ground up on Instagram. So that's kind of how we split up the budget. Did I know immediately it would resonate and like have sales? I knew it in my gut, 
it's hard to explain that, but it was very much like, I want to see this imagery come out. And, and again, like I said, it resonated because we had those right inputs in the beginning. What a great founding story. So now you're a few years in. Talk to me about how you started to distribute the product. Obviously, you went D2C, but then what were your thoughts after that? How did you start to really understand the market and where your customer was shopping? One of the key partners that we have where we sell now is Sephora. Sephora is our exclusive retail partner. Interestingly, my relationship with Sephora started when I applied for their Sephora Accelerate program. This was in 2020. So before we had launched, I applied for the program and all I had were lab samples, but we did have those photo shoot assets. So I really do thank them. They hadn't been publicly released yet, but we had this beautiful imagery, a beautiful brand deck and story and vision. And we were selected. And, you know, it's interesting too, I think, you know, thinking back, there was a cultural moment that was happening. There was 15% pledge. There was a renewed sentiment of we need more inclusive brands to be in retail shelves that was happening at the same time. So I think timing is important. And I'm, I'm glad that we were able to be in that moment because Sephora decided to shift their program, their Accelerate program to be focused on BIPOC founded brands. And so we were in that first cohort. We were selected before we launched. And that kind of kicked off my relationship with Sephora. Of course, that program happened in 2021. And it took us like almost 18 months before we actually launched online on Sephora because there's a long journey from idea to product to being retail ready. But knowing that we had this strategic partner, which uh, really is best in class in beauty, allowed me to think longer term and allowed me to think, okay, like we have this product we launched with, it's resonating with editors, it's resonating organically with our community. We didn't do paid ads at that point in time because this was also when Facebook, Apple had the privacy changes and Facebook algorithms were no longer as effective. So a lot of the other things were happening, but I kept my focus on let's continue building the organic community and let's build a strategic relationship we have with Sephora because we knew that that's ultimately where we want to be. We want to be where people shop beauty and Sephora is definitely a destination for that. What a wild, wild ride. Will you share a little bit of what it was like to be in that accelerator program? A little bit about... Did you have meetings regularly? Were you kind of left alone for periods of time and then you came back and presented? What did the program look like? It was actually pretty intense in terms of programming. This was, again, like I said, during the pandemic. So our program ran fully remote, but we had weekly programming. So every week we would have a few hours of sessions. They cover different topics, everything from R&D, product development, marketing, founder panels, legal, there was an investor panel. So it really did kind of give you a 360 view of all the different pieces that you need to have to be able to, again, be retail ready. So Sephora is really preparing these brands that haven't even launched yet in our case. You know, again, we launched in February in the middle of the program and some there were some brands who hadn't even launched till the end of the program, just giving them a sense of what all the different pieces that need to come together and also connecting us with a lot of great people within the company and founders at Sephora. One of the best end results of that program was that we started talking to a makeup merchant who would be our partner to help us get the launch. And we would have regular meetings with the makeup merchant, like every two weeks we'd have a meeting and then we would sit down and be like, specifically for Kofi, when can we launch? What do we need to be launch ready? What do the formulas need to look like? And so on. And I think having that one-to-one -one retail merchant relationship is just priceless, right? Like 
I know a lot of less in beauty, but in other categories, people go through brokers to try to get in front of a merchant, but being able to just have that relationship and Sephora really guiding you through that and invested in your success, invested in making you and getting you to launch. I think that was, I don't think you can put like a dollar value to that. I think it was really invaluable to be in that position. What was the recommendation for how many SKUs you were going to launch with? I know you had your hero eyeliner that really was setting up the brand, but when you went to launch, how many did you end up with? And was that the Sephora recommendation or was that your going back to what you really felt was important for your customer? So Sephora did want us to launch with more than one category. And we had been working on, I'd been working on a concealer at the same time. So that concealer was in the works. It was already shared with Sephora at the time we had applied because that was, again, a huge white space for our target audience was like concealer that really addressed our undertones and skin tones and hyperpigmentation, dark circles, etc. So that was kind of, they kind of knew that it was coming. But they did tell us that we need to have that concealer ready before we can launch you. We are not going to launch you just with eyeliner. Now, that's different, again, for different categories, because if you're a skincare or hair care brand, I think they're more willing to launch you with one SKU. But with makeup, they felt, especially with given our story and positioning, they felt that we needed to have multiple categories before we would be launch ready. The other step we took was that we launched .com only, and that was also a Sephora recommendation. And initially I was hesitant because I was like, I'm launching concealer. I wanted to launch in store. You know, there's a, that's really important for people to be able to try the shades. But I think I'm actually in retrospect really glad that we took that step because it allowed me to, again to understand Sephora a little bit better before we launch in store because there's a huge steep like ramp up curve that happens with Sephora, which actually I realized we weren't ready for because when we launched online, a concealer went viral on TikTok. We sold out, which is amazing, but then we were out of inventory for like three or four months because I just did not even know that, you know, Sephora could make those kind of like volumes happen, right? I wasn't really ready for that. And so I'm glad that we didn't write at the jump launch in store. And then we had a year, we just launched in store a couple of months ago, which was amazing in about 340 doors across the US and Canada. And that one year really allowed me between online and in-store to prepare for that in-store launch. So I would say like Sephora is very involved and they don't like, there's no blanket like recommendation that they have. They definitely do work with each brand to figure out what is the right path for them. But I would say, especially the small indie brand, the slower you go, the better because you don't want to make expensive mistakes. Running out of inventory and have nothing to sell for a few months, those are expensive mistakes. Like they sound like fun marketing stories, but when you are like, oh, my restock's going to come in six months and I'm disappointing both the end customer and my Sephora merchant, like that's a really hard place to be in as an entrepreneur. Absolutely. And the fact that you're losing momentum, right? So you've got great energy you've put behind it and even dollars and time to get yourself to launch, to get on to these platforms and into the merchants. And then you lose momentum when you don't have the product. And it is really expensive to get that going again. So I can completely understand your stress in that moment. And I agree with what you said, Priyanka. I think it's a really good point when we're in these spaces and launching brands and growing brands that making these small changes and making smaller errors where it's just not as risky. So being online first, where you could work out your true demand and work out what your supply chain looks like and all of those pieces so that when you go to the next step, right, which is being on shelf, you're ready. You have a lot more experience and a lot more understanding 
and really a lot more of the process is worked out is probably usually what happens. And then you, you know, you, you'll hit obviously errors and problems on shelf and so on, but it's about taking each of these steps, step-by-step step, so you can work through them, learn from them, make improvements, and then go the next big leap to your point. So it's not so expensive when you make those errors, which we all do, by the way. <laughs> Absolutely. We all do. And I think it's, you have to take it as a learning, but you also want to, like you said, just be mindful that you are taking it step-by-step. Step so you're not held back because you didn't know something. Yeah. And you didn't lose all of that really big investment that you've made into the community, into the communication and into the market plan. And find is really interesting. You know, a lot of the times we think, oh, the hardest part of starting the brand is the capital behind making the product is getting the right product. And yes, that's a chunk of it, but honestly, it's the go-to-market piece. It's the setup for getting into the market, getting into the right retailers or on your D2C and then all of the things that come after. It's like, that's almost just the starting line. It's all the rest of it. And it's expensive and takes a lot of resources to stay in the market and keep the momentum and to build. What an amazing launch story. And the fact that you were able to get into Sephora speaks volume about the white space that you saw when you started this whole endeavor. Absolutely. I resonate so much with what you're saying. It's just the starting point. I always go back and say like, wow, like I look back to last year, I see, oh, wow, I learned so much. And then again, you know, now our conversations are, how do we manage cash flow and inventory? Because when you're in store, that's a huge investment, right? You have to have a constant stream of inventory that you're holding, that Sephora's holding, that you want to make sure they're not RTVing. You know, there's just all these like different things that come into place that are very cash intensive. And it's just that the game has changed. It's not that it's gotten easier. It just has changed. The other piece we're thinking about is, you know, we have great online presence. We have great online community building. But when you walk into a store, the dynamic is very different. Now, a customer walking into the store, there's so many brands out there. How do you direct them to Kofi? How do you educate the store beauty advisors on what Kofi is and what we stand for? And that's a whole new challenge, right? Again, that's going to be my whole next year is going to figure out, like, how do we educate at the ground level, at the store level? And I'm grateful for Sephora again for partnering with us such that we are starting with a smaller set of stores. I mean, 350 stores is still a lot of stores, but it's still, you know, there's room to grow there. There's more stores we have, but it gives us a stepping stone to get to all doors because now we can focus on productivity, focus on all those like hard, not necessarily sexy kind of like pieces of the business that are going to make or break whether you're going to survive or not. We recently just had Oliver, the CEO and owner of Cosbar on, obviously a major retailer, and he spoke so much about the importance of really being in store and training the store personnel and the founder themselves and their team being in store to really understand what it takes to succeed on shelf. And with that perspective, what are two or three things that you have done at Colfi now that you're launched in store with those Sephora specific stores that you've looked at? What are some of the strategies that you've done to really make that success happen? The first will be definitely partnering with the Sephora teams. They have a structure in place, which many retailers do of like regional managers, obviously store managers, and kind of like getting in front of them even before we had launched and building those relationships was really important. And I remember sometimes the regional managers would be surprised that I'd be on all the calls and I'm like, yes, of course I'm on all the calls because I want to be really involved. And we hired a field education and sales director specifically again to 
really focus on building those relationships because the store managers really reflect what's happening on, on the ground. So that's really been step one. And, you know, continuing to do that by actually going and visiting stores. So one of the store visits we did was in Dallas. And, you know, again, the Dallas consumer is very different from the New York consumer walking in. They're very, the store interaction is different. The store environment is very different. And so I think being able to experience it ourselves and being able to build those relationships is really important. The second piece I would say is, there's kind of this coming together that's happening between content, education, influencing, store associates. There are a lot of store associates that actually are also influencers, and then they're creating education content. And so they not only become influencers within the store environment, they're also speaking to audience on social media, but then they're speaking from a place of authority because they're like, we're a Sephora, you know, beauty advisor or beauty esthetician. So I think like, Finding those people has been really important for us because they become our key opinion leaders in marketing speak, but really they become like the people who, if they love our product, we know they go an extra mile to tell everyone about Kofi in their store. Even if nobody else has heard of it, they become people who talk about Kofi in store. So really finding and cultivating relationships with these beauty advisors who are also, who really want to grow in their career and become beauty influencers is, has been really important. And ultimately, like, I mean, we're still very early stages, still testing and learning, but really trying to like iterate on like how much support do we need on ground? Where do we place that support? I'm still kind of figuring that out and looking at data is really important at the end of the day, like where are top stores, where are doors that are not performing and are they not performing because we don't have inventory or are they not performing because there's no one there for education or they're not performing because of some other reason, like trying to understand that again, very, very early stages, but taking a data driven lens into each store is something that I'm really kind of spending a lot of time doing. Those are absolutely great pieces of advice. So thank you for that, Priyanka. Now that you're officially in store for Sephora, what are the next things for Kofi Beauty? Where do you want to see yourselves in the next two to three years? I think just continue to delight our customers. That's always, you know, number one. At the end of the day, if your customers are not happy, you're not putting out great product that they love, you're not bringing joy to their life, which is really what our brand stands for. That's really hard. I think one of the things that I struggle with as we scale is this idea of like scaling sometimes can feel very formulaic and very process oriented. But what I want to keep alive is that feeling of that passion project where I started with, where I was like, I want to just create something that's really innovative and new and different and fresh. And so balancing that is important. How do we keep that creativity going with delighting the customer, you know, really listening to them and coming up with new products, new experiences, new partnerships, storytelling, which is really central to our brand and staying relevant while at the same time figuring out the process pieces of it, because those are really important too, as we talked about, like we talked about inventory, we talked about field education, like there's a lot of like that goes behind the scenes and being able to balance that is kind of going to be my biggest challenge. But I feel really excited overall. I feel like we have a really great partner in Sephora. They've been really helpful in guiding us and a very clear differentiation in the market where we stand for clean color cosmetics. It's almost like clean meets color. I think clean has been very minimalist for a very long time, but we have those high performance, high pigment formulas that really shine and stand out in the market. And I feel like continuing to stay true to that vision bringing more people into that building brand awareness is going to be my goal for the next couple of years. And ultimately, I think kind of going back to the vision of 
how why I started was, you know, there's a billion South Asian people around the world that haven't seen a brand like ours. And so, you know, ultimately I would love to build Kofi into a global brand where we can, you know, really reach the audience, the international audience that has been DMing us They're in our social media, like asking us when we launch in Malaysia and India and the Middle East and UK. And I feel like there's such a huge, huge demand there that as we, again, this is not two to three years, this may be like five to 10 years, but I do feel like we have the right to kind of own that and grow into that. Priyanka, you have been such a joy to speak with. Your energy around all of this is a huge part of it. And I have really enjoyed our conversation today. And I'm sure we have listeners that will want to reach out to you. If they do, how can they get a hold of you? The best place is Instagram. Priyanka Ganju is where I am. And I'm uh, typically pretty responsive on DMs. So that would be where you can find me. And thank you so much, Jessica. I enjoyed this conversation so much. Well, if you also enjoyed the conversation and want to continue buzzing with me, head on over to buzzbeauty.com. This has been Beauty Is Your Business. Produced by Mouth Media Network. Keep in touch on Instagram and Facebook at Mouth Media Network. And find prior episodes at beautyisyourbusiness.com and wherever the best podcasts are found. Your brand message can be on this show. Email us to find out more at podcast at mouthmedianetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Thank you.